All right, good morning. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. This is a good sign. This service is already more excited than the last one was. That's a good, that's a good sign, I think. All right, so today we are going to finish up our series on what the Bible says about um, money and possessions. We have been in this series for a while now. This is part nine, the final week, and we are in the series, Spending Someone Else's Money. And the final series, the final topic that we wanted to end on is the topic of financial stress or money anxiety. Now, why are we going to cover the topic of financial anxiety? And the answer is, well, I, I wrote down three things here at the top of my notes. I wrote down, first of all, because we deal with it. Like this is a thing that's in our lives, right? Financial stress is something we should talk about because financial stress is something that we experience. Probably everybody in this room has at some point and maybe especially um, a lot more in the past couple of years for some of us. Uh, second reason I think is good to talk about this is because there's a Bible passage about it. Jesus actually preached on this topic, so we might as well look at what he has to say. And then the third reason, and this kind of helped influence me deciding whether to do this or not, I had a friend who texted me, I don't remember, a month or two ago, and he said to me, um, you need to preach another sermon on the topic of anxiety. And I texted back and said, you know, I, I feel like I just did. Like last, the previous November, um, I, I did a sermon on this topic, and in fact, the year before that, April, I did a sermon on that topic. So like, there was a 2020 version, there was a 2020 sermon on anxiety, and there was a 2021 sermon on anxiety. Does there really need to be a 2022 sermon on anxiety? And he basically texted back and said, yes, our culture breeds anxiety, and it's time for a sermon on it. Um, anybody agree with him? Okay, isn't that great? He's actually him right there, so that's cool that that worked out. Um, <laughs> they love you, Jeremy. Okay, so... So I thought about it, and, and I figured I could fit it in with this series, because we're in a series on money, and so since money worries are an issue that Jesus preached about, I figured we can kind of talk about money and anxiety all together. Um, and in fact, if the thing that you are worried about today is something that is non-financial, you can still listen to the sermon, because I think some of the principles that we're going to learn in the sermon can apply to non-financial worries as well. So, our passage is Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 24. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is preaching a sermon. I'm going to read to you from verse 24 to verse 34. This is what Jesus said on this topic. Right? Jesus said, No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. So, I want to give you my outline for this morning. I was 
studying this passage this week, and there were two things that jumped out to me in this passage that I, I thought to myself, it's interesting, it almost looks like this passage is saying something that I am pretty sure it's not saying. And so there were two things that I thought, oh, I might need to clarify that, this, that Jesus is not saying this. And then I asked myself, okay, well, what is he saying? And I came up with four things that I think Jesus is saying in this passage. And so that's sort of my outline. I want to talk about two things that I think he is not saying in this passage and four things that I think he is saying in this passage. Okay, so you follow? We'll start with the two things that I don't think Jesus was saying, that Jesus was not teaching. And the first thing is, I believe Jesus in this passage was not teaching um, that Christians will never, ever starve to death. However, I think that's one of the things you could get out of this passage if you're just reading through it. If you look at verse 33 in particular, that's a very famous verse. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. So the people who seek after God and his kingdom and his righteousness, it says there will be things that will be provided for them. What will be provided for them? Things. What things? Well, the sentences that came before this make it clear what the things are. It was, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? Right? Those are the things that the idolaters go after and your heavenly father knows you need them. So you can tell he's saying food and water and clothing and covering, like those things, your your basic necessities will be provided for you. You just got to seek first the kingdom of God. So what was Jesus saying here? I think Jesus was saying, hey, put him first and, and he will provide for you. But then that brings us to the question, well, if that's true, wouldn't it also be true that it is impossible for a Christian to starve to death, right? Or impossible for a Christian to dehydrate or impossible for a Christian to die of exposure, right? If he says, hey, or at least a really good Christian, well, whoever's seeking first the kingdom of God, if you seek first the kingdom of God, then you will not lack right, food or drink or clothing. So wouldn't this be saying that it is, it is not possible for Christians to starve to death or dehydrate or die of exposure? I don't think that's what Jesus meant, right? In fact, if you just look over the past 2,000 years of history, like since Jesus said these words, is it true over the past 2,000 years that there, that there have been zero Christians who have ever starved to death or ever experienced dehydration or ever died of exposure? Like, how, how, are there Christians that have died of those things in the past 2,000 years? Of course, of course. I'm sure it's happened many, many times. Well, then, then what does this mean, right? What, what, did Jesus, what was Jesus saying? In fact, I'll let you know this, it's actually worse than you think. Not only is it true that Christians have died of starvation and dehydration and whatever else, like because they they didn't have something their body needed, but actually that's true of every single Christian of the past 2,000 years. Like everybody who has died, think about this, everybody who has died in the past 2,000 years, right, And, and this would include Christians, and this would include even Christians who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, right, all of the people who sought after Jesus and they loved him and they followed him, they died because their body didn't get something that it needed, right? That's why the death happened. I mean, that, that's like your body needs a certain stuff in order to make it. And if you don't get enough of the stuff, the body shuts off. I mean, I know that's not the medical term for it, but that's what it is, right? And it could be food and it could be, um, you know, water and it could be um, the temperature stuff, but it also could be, um, there are people that die for lack of oxygen, right? They die of asphyxiation and they have problems with their lungs. And there are people who die of blood loss, right? Because they got some sort of injury and they weren't able to tend to it in time or, you know, whatever, their spinal cord was severed and there's brain waves or whatever the thing is. But basically every Christian who has ever died, died because there was something their body needed that it didn't get. So then what do we do? And so this is the thing, when I look at this passage, I think that Jesus is simply saying, God is the one who provides for us. 
God is the creator of the world. The reason you have food, the reason you have drink, the reason you have clothing, the reason your body moves, the reason your lungs are filling with air and then you know, exhaling and you have oxygen, like the reason you're living is because God is the one who provides for you. God is the one who provides for all of us. You're breathing right now because he decided you get to keep breathing for another day. He is the one who has created all things. He's provided everything that you need. He is the one who is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. He provides for us and you will live as long as he wants you to live. In fact, even in this passage, you can see that that's, I I think that's the gist of it because he compares the way that God provides for us and meets our needs with the way that God meets the needs of birds. Do you remember that in verse 26? Look at verse 26. Jesus said, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father, what does he do? He feeds them. So who is the one who feeds the birds? God. Who is the one that provides for the birds? God. Now, this is important to understand. Birds die. Eventually, right? Eventually, all birds die. But who is the one that provides for them until they die? God is the one that does that. Now, there are birds that get an injured wing, and then they're not able to gather food and water, and they die. Birds have been dying for a long time as well. But God is the one who is feeding them and providing for them until they die. God will provide for you until the day of your death. And, and this is the amazing part, and this is the part that I don't think applies to birds. (laughs) If you follow him, if you seek after his kingdom and his righteousness, he will provide for you to live forever. That the gospel is, and I'm just kind of to explain like one aspect of the gospel, that Jesus Christ lived the life that we should live in our place, like a righteous life on our behalf, and then died the death that we should die. The, 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 like the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins was poured out on Jesus so that it doesn't have to be poured out on us. He rose again. God accepted his sacrifice. He, Jesus is alive now and living forever and can give eternal life to whoever believes in him and does give eternal life to whoever believes in him. And he promises he's going to come back. He's going to come back a second time, and he's going to undo the deaths of the people who trust in him, right? The people who seek after him in his kingdom. He's going to resurrect them, is what the Bible says, and he will live with them forever and ever and ever. And so I guess I actually can say there is a sense in which you can say that Christians are never going to starve to death. Like there is coming a day when there will be people who follow God forever and they will never dehydrate and they will never die of exposure and they will never die of anything ever again. That's the gospel. I'm just saying, as Jesus is teaching this, I don't think he's saying that's true this go-around. I think it's true the next go-around, when we live with him forever. Okay, the second thing that I think Jesus is not saying, so I don't think Jesus is teaching that Christians will never starve to death. I also think that Jesus is not teaching that Christians shouldn't work, or that Christians shouldn't work for money, or that Christians shouldn't work for food. If you look at this passage and you just kind of read it, I don't know, not very carefully, you could kind of come to that conclusion, couldn't you? I mean, look at verse... The two illustrations he uses are really what almost makes it seem that way. Verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the sky. They don't what? They don't sow or reap or gather into barns. So the people of Jesus' day and age, that's the stuff they did in order to eat, right? They planted things and then the things grew and they gathered into barns and that's how they eat. And And he seems to be saying, hey, the birds don't do that and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And it almost seems like if you only had this verse, it sounds like almost like Jesus is going, hey, the birds don't work. Be like the birds, right? God feeds them. They just sit around. They get fed. They don't have to work. You shouldn't either. Don't work. Just wait for God to feed you. It almost sounds like he's saying that. And then it happens again with the grass. Look at verse 28, I think it is. Yeah, verse, verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? 
right? You don't need to get clothes. You don't need to sew anything. You don't need to buy anything. Don't worry about clothes. Why? Um, why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't, what's the word? Labor, right? They don't work. They don't labor or spin thread. So you don't need to worry about clothes. You just sit around and just God will give you the clothes you need. Just be like a wildflower. Doesn't it seem like that's what he's saying here? And so I think if we're not careful, we could read this passage and go, oh, I guess God doesn't want us to like work for anything. We're just supposed to sit around and wait for him to provide for us. No, I don't think that's, what, that's, I don't think that's the gist of this passage. I'm going to explain to you why I don't think that's what Jesus was saying. But one of the ways you can know that's not what he was saying is because it would contradict the rest of the scripture, right? I think the rest of the scripture is very clear that the ordinary way that God provides for us is through our work. Human beings ordinarily have food and clothes and drink because of the work that they do to get it. That is the ordinary way that God provides for us. You can see this all throughout the Bible, I think. Let me show you one place where it's really obvious. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So I don't think Jesus was doing anything to contradict this scripture that I'm about to read to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. This is Paul talking to the Thessalonians, and he says to them, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's important. This is the same religion, right? This is not Jesus said one thing, now Paul says something different. No, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, we're into him. And we say to you, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. Ooh, so he's saying, watch out for those irresponsible people. What does he mean by irresponsible people? Well, you're going to see, as we keep reading, you're going to see it's people who refuse to work. That's what he's talking about. He's saying there, there were some people there in Thessalonica who wouldn't work. They were just sitting back and saying, like, oh, I'll just wait for somebody else to provide for me. And you're going to see that he calls that irresponsible. For you yourselves know how we, you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's bread free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled, working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support, right? Because they were pastors, missionaries, and they're saying that you could have paid us for what we were doing, right? It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, there it is, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working, what? They may eat their own food. So clearly the assumption in this passage is the ordinary way that you eat your own food is by working for it. Work is the way that God ordinarily provides um, our, our needs for us. So I don't think the passage is saying, hey, quit your job, stop working, be like a flower, be like a bird. In fact, if you go back to the passage, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25, um, and you just look at, that, look at that section, you'll see that the thrust of the passage certainly isn't don't work. The thrust of the passage is don't worry, right? That's the thing he says over and over again. He doesn't say over and over again, don't work, don't work, don't work, but he says don't worry, don't worry over and over again. Look at verse 25. This is why I tell you don't worry about your life. Look at verse 31. So don't worry saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. Look at verse 34. Therefore don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Like it seems obvious to me the thrust of this passage isn't quit your job. The thrust of this passage is do not worry. It's not don't work. It's don't worry. 
So those are the first two things that I wanted to address. I, I, those are the two things I think he's not saying. I don't think he's saying quit your job, you don't have to work. I don't think he's saying Christians can't possibly starve to death. Okay, well then what is he saying? So I looked at this passage, I'm like, what is the point? What is it that Jesus is trying to communicate? And so um, I, I have four points that I want to give you this morning, all right? And these four points are going to come up on the screen. You can put them up now. And I think this is the gist of what Jesus is saying. At least these are the four things that stuck out to me. And I will admit right now, let me read them to you. This is what I think Jesus is teaching us. Don't worry. Trust God. Worry is a spiritual problem. And there are things more important than food and money. And I get these, these points from the text itself. I hope that you can notice that this wasn't just me like trying to find what I wanted to say and then finding a verse that matched it. No, I started with the passage and then tried to figure out, okay, what does this, what is Jesus saying to us? Not, do I, not what do I wish he said, but like what is it that he's saying? And this is what I think he's saying. And, I, and as, I, as I came up with these four points, I realized there's quite a bit of overlap between these. And a better preacher than I am could have probably condensed this into like three or two points. But I'm not a better preacher than I am, so we got four points, all right? I, I, I couldn't figure out a way that I was cool with making this less, so just realize some of the things I say might, might overlap, but, but this is what I think Jesus is saying. First of all, he says, don't worry. It's very clear that's what the passage is about. Like, you do not have to be a biblical scholar to read this paragraph, and you think to your, what is it about? Well, the fact that he says, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, is a giant clue as to what this passage is about. Right? So, so it's not hard to figure out. That's the thing that he's getting at here. All right? um, and he mentions that worry does not help you. Did you see that in verse 27? He says that worry is actually not going to help your life, and he does it with a rhetorical question in verse 27. He says, can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Now, he didn't wait for the, the audience to answer back because it was obvious the answer is no, right? Like he's just asking this question. Can any of you... Is your life going to be better because you worry, right? Is it gonna, is it, are you going to improve because of your worrying? Of course not. Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Now, this is an interesting verse, at least it is to me, because it's one of those verses in the Bible, and there are a few of them like this, that you could translate it more than one way, and the translators don't exactly know which way it should be translated. So in my translation of the Bible, the HCSB, it translates it this way. Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? Um, but even in my Bible, in the margins, it says, or another way to translate it would be, um, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? So apparently, if you go back to like the original Greek, what you have is this. Jesus asked a rhetorical question where he said, can any of you add a single unit of measurement to his, and then he uses this word that in the Greek apparently means stature, and it can refer to the length of someone's life, or it can refer to the size of their body. So Jesus said, can you add a unit of measurement to your life. And the translators don't know if he's saying, can you add an inch to your height? Or if he's saying, can you add a day to your life? Right? They don't know which one he's saying um, by worrying. And so I'll say this. I mean, if you're saying, well, which one is it, Mario? I don't know. I mean, I don't know more than translators. I certainly will not tell you for sure what the answer is. Um, I will say this, though. As I read through this passage, it sure seems like, can any of you add a single day to his life, like fits the context better. It seems better that it seems to me more like I mean, I just don't know anyone that thinks that they would get taller from worrying, right? But, but we might think to ourselves that, like, we could extend our life if we just, are, like, have, you know, get, get concerned in just the right way. Um, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. Either way, it's true. Like, whatever Jesus said, it's true, right? Worry will not make you taller. Worry will not make your life be any longer, right? It, so whichever way you take it, the point is, worry is not going to improve your life. It will not. And in fact, 
we have learned, like, since the time that Jesus said this, in the past 2,000 years somewhere, we've learned, like, scientifically that not only does worry not make your life better, it makes it worse. Like, not only does worry not add days to your life, haven't we learned that worry actually subtracts days from your life? It does. So Jesus tells us not to worry. As I was studying for this, I read a commentary by a guy named Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was like a pastor and theologian um, way a long time ago. He wrote a commentary set in the early 1700s, um, and someone gave it to me. So I have this really old book that I was reading. And so I'm going to read to you what Matthew Henry said back in the early 1700s. And by the way, for those of you that are not good with history, but what, I mean, this is old. This is early 1700s would be before there was a United States, right? So before, it was just cool to think about. Before there was ever a United States of America, there were people who read their Bibles and figured out what it meant. And so this guy, Matthew Henry, says this when he's talking about this particular passage. Quote, he says it, let me stop real quick. So in context, this is the he is Jesus, and the it is this passage. So basically, Matthew Henry is saying, Jesus says, do not worry, all right? Now let me keep reading. Jesus says, do not worry, as our lawgiver and the sovereign of our hearts, he says it as our comforter and the helper of our joy. And when I came across that, I thought it was just so powerful that I wanted to tell you that I think that's true and I wanted to explain it to you. That when Jesus tells us not to worry, he says it to us as our lawgiver and the sovereign of our hearts. And he says it to us as our comforter and the helper of our joy. And I bet you there are some people in this room that need to hear at least one of those two things, if not both of those things. So one of them is this. He says it to us as our sovereign, right? He says it to us as our lawgiver. There may be some of you in this room that think of Jesus' words sometimes as like suggestions, right? And he says, don't worry. And we go, "Mm, maybe I'll do that. Good old Jesus giving me advice for my life. And we act like Jesus says things that are suggestions. And we come across, especially passages like this one, do not worry, right? And we go, oh, that that is cute. I'm so glad Jesus said that. And then I'm glad he did that. That was probably something you could do back then right? But Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through in 2022, right? I mean, he didn't have got the, all the insurance forms and the taxes and the employment stuff and the thing. And I just, you know, whew, he doesn't, he did not have the bills I have. He doesn't have all the stuff I have to deal with. So that's cool that there was some point where you couldn't worry. Good for him. But like, I, I couldn't possibly do that. And so for those of you in that boat, I guess I need to say to you, whoa, 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 whoa. He says it as our lawgiver and our sovereign. Like God came down here as a person and spoke out loud, and what he says, we are to take seriously. On the other hand, there may be some of you who have grown up, and you had definitely think of Jesus as the lawgiver and the sovereign over your heart, and you need to be reminded that he says this as our comforter and the helper of our joy. That when he says, don't worry, this is not him simply being our sovereign and going, well, this is the rule. Don't worry. I said it. You do it, right? You do what I say. No, think about what he's telling us to do. He's saying, don't, don't worry. It's not going to make your life better. It's going to make your life worse. He's, why is Jesus telling you to not worry? Because he wants you to be happy, right? He wants you to be happier than you are, right? That's the, that's the, the thing that's underneath his command. It's not like I say, don't worry, now do it. Like he's saying, don't worry, your life will be better. You will have more joy if you do what I'm asking you to do, right? He is our comforter and the helper of our joy. And I just think it's so great for us to think of that. Okay, he says, don't worry. He is my lawgiver, my sovereign, and my comforter, and the helper of my joy. 
All right, number two. So point two. So that was don't worry. Now, trust God. So don't worry is obvious. He says it over and over again. Trust God, maybe slightly less obvious, but still pretty obvious, because even though the passage doesn't have those exact two words next to each other, it's implied throughout this passage. Um, If you look at verse 26, you see where he says, look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, right? God takes care of them. And then he says, aren't you worth more than they? The implication is, trust God, right? He feeds birds, he'll feed you. Trust him. I think that's the implication there. Uh, Same thing for verse 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith. Isn't the implication, hey, he clothes the grass with the wildflowers. He will take care of you. Trust him. And then again in verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for him. You put him first and then trust him to provide what you need. And so I would say, as you look at this passage, Jesus says, don't worry, but it's not simply like, don't worry. This isn't a passage of just something you've got to stop doing. He's saying, take, take your worry and replace it with trust God. Now, the third point is that worry is a spiritual problem. And by that, I just mean, I think Jesus treats worry here, at least he seems to, the, the way he connects it is as if it's like a moral issue or is it, it is an issue that is connected to your relationship with God. Worry is not simply just a thing that we deal with in this world that's like disconnected from God. He, he, he speaks about God quite a bit in this passage, right? Look at verse 30. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the furnace, won't he do much more for you, you of little what? Faith. It seems like, I mean, maybe he just says that all the time, but it seems like he is connecting faith with the issue at hand. He's saying the reason that you freak out about how are we going to get enough and how, are we gonna, and how am I going to get my bills paid and is there going to be enough food and is there going to be enough drink and is there going to be enough clothing? He's saying, hey, you don't need to worry about that. God will take care of you. You have little faith. Like the re- it seems like he's connecting those two, right? That the reason you're worried is because there's a deficiency in your faith. Another implication of it is in verse 32, when he says, for the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. Idolaters is a word that could also be translated Gentiles. And he's, he's talking about the people who don't know God yet, right? The people of this world, the people who don't know the true God. They're the people who are all worried about this. So again, it seems that the implication is, if you are going to go around being worried about what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear and how will we have enough, you're acting like the people who don't know God. Like that's how they act. They don't know. They don't, they're, not, they're not trusting that there's a heavenly father that's going to look out for them. And then another place where you can see that there's a connection between this and like our relationship with God is in verse, let's go to verse 25. And in verse 25, it says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. And most Bibles start a new paragraph right there with that word, okay? And it does that in my Bible right here, okay? This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. And sure, it's fine that that's the beginning of a new paragraph, but you can tell it's not the beginning of the thought, is it? It starts with, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. Well, why is why I tell you? (laughs) Like, clearly he's saying, don't worry about your life because of something he had just said. What had he just said? Can you give me the last part of verse 24? This is what he had just said. He said, you cannot be slaves of God and of money. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. He had just been saying, no one can serve two masters. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve money, right? Those are your options. And in light of that... Don't worry about your life. 
There's a connection between who your master is, who your God is, and what you're worried about. Yeah, if your master is money, if that's what you're living for, then you're going to be worried about money. But if God is your master, oh, well, then this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. He will provide for you. And so it seems like there is a spiritual problem. There's a relationship with God issue. There's a trusting in the wrong God, having the wrong master, not having the right kind of faith, acting like the people who don't know God that is connected to our worries. Now, if that's true, whew, if this is actually a spiritual moral issue, there may be some of you that go, Mario, are you saying that worry is like a sin? Right? I mean, goodness gracious. Are you saying all worries are a sin? Is, worries, is worry always a sin? Because goodness gracious, I worry all the time, Mario. I didn't think I was sinning. I worry all the time and all my friends worry all the time. So, like, that can't, it couldn't be a sin, right? So let me say this to you. First, I got more than one thing to say to you about that. First thing I want to say is this. Don't assume that because you do it, it must not be a sin. Like, that's a terrible way to figure out sin. Have you ever thought about that? That's your way of figuring out sin? Well, do I do it a lot? Yes, I do. Must not be a sin. Really? It's remarkable how holy you are going to find yourself to be if your definition of sin is stuff I rarely do, Right? And you have, well, no, it can't be a sin. I do it all the time. Same thing for friends, right? Oh, well, all my friends are doing this. So could it be a sin, right? Well, no, it couldn't be. Not if all my friends are doing it. Seriously, just consider the possibility. All of your friends are sinning. That's, that's totally possible. Okay, so having said that, having said that, that I do it and my friends do it, being a terrible way to figure out sins, it, I just want to make sure I say that loud and clear. Now, having said that, no, I don't think that every single thing that could be called worry is sinful, right? I don't think every worry is sinful. I explained this back in my sermon on this back on November 7th. If you want to go and re-listen to that sermon to get a longer explanation of this, you can. It was preached on November 7th. The title of the sermon was Hard Feelings Part 1. Um, but I'll just quickly say that what I said back then that I still believe now is... In the Bible, the word that's translated into our English word, worry, okay, that word and the forms of that word in the original language are translated in other portions of the Bible into the word care or concern. That is, there's a word in Greek that sometimes is translated worry, and usually when it's translated worry, it's when you find it in a passage where it says don't. But then there are other times where that same word or form of that word is found and it's translated as care or concern, like, oh, this person really cares about this other person or this person is concerned about this thing. And you can tell in some of the care and concern passages that it, there, there's, it's, the care and concern is not spoken of negatively. Sometimes it's neutral, sometimes it's positive. It's like, oh, it's good that this person cares about these people. It's good that this person is concerned about the church. And so I guess what I'm saying is it's good to know that that's all word, one word in Greek. It's real easy for us in English to just say, like, worry is bad, care and concern is good, right? But, but back 2,000 years ago, there was just one word for all that. And so they just had to figure out what was the kind of concern and care that's good and what's the kind that's bad. Like, it, was, it would be more obvious to them in their language than it is to us that there are obviously good worries and bad worries, there's the kind that it's like, oh, this person cares about them, good job. And there's the kind where Jesus says, don't do it. So not every worry is a sin, but obviously some of them are. And in this case, I think Jesus is saying that the concerns that you have, the cares that you have about money that come from your lack of trust in God or your surplus of trust in money need to be repented of. Those concerns need to be turned away from. 
And then number four. Number four is there are things more important than food. There are things more important than money. You see this in the rhetorical question of verse 25. It says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Isn't there more to life than these things you're worried about? To which, of course, the listener says, yes, of course, there's more to life than that. So what is it? What is it that's more important than food and clothing? Well, Jesus mentions in verse 33 two things that are more important. Here it is. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God. That's one thing. And his righteousness. That's another thing. And all these things will be provided for you. So there are some things that you need to seek first, right? Because why? Because they're more important than all these things. When Jesus says to seek first his kingdom and to seek first his righteousness, seek first God's like rulership of this world and seek first God's like ways in this world, right? That's the right righteousness. Like this idea that we need to seek that first, I think is like, I think the word first is saying in order of importance, right? Not just chronological, but like this should be number one on your list. This should be your top priority. Seek first God and what he wants and what he's doing. That should be the top of the list, the first thing you do, the most important thing to you. When I was in my 20s, I heard a pastor preaching on this passage, and he said, this is, he said it something like this. He said, your mortgage is important. Your bills are important. God is important. Now, what's going to be most important to you? And I think the gist of verse 33 and maybe even verse 34 is if you get your top priority right, the other things will sort themselves out. You see that? Look at verse 33. But, his, but seek first the kingdom of God, right? Seek him first in his righteousness, and then what? Well, these things will be provided for you. The, the lower things on the, on the priority list, those things will work out. You, you seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. And these lesser things work themselves out. And then verse 34 seems to say that too. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Because tomorrow will worry about itself. Get your top priority right and the other things will sort themselves out. So bottom line this morning, you are going to serve somebody. All of us will. All of us are going to live our lives for something or someone. You're going to serve somebody, and to use the categories that Jesus uses here, you'll either be a slave of one master or the other, right? But you cannot be slaves of God and of money. You're going to serve somebody. And if you choose to serve money, you will think of it as belonging to you, and you will spend this life building your little kingdom on this earth for you. And if you serve God and say, no, God is my master. His kingdom is what's most important. Then you will realize all of the stuff that you call yours is his. And you will serve his kingdom, his everlasting kingdom. And if your kingdom is what you are living for, and if your little kingdom on this earth is what you are depending on, then yes, you need to worry. You need to freak out every now and again. That's my advice to you. Okay, if your kingdom, if money is your master and that's what you're looking for, that's what you're depending upon, right? If that's what you're living for, then yes, you need, I would say to you, worry, worry a lot, freak out every once in a while because the troubles of tomorrow are going to come and you may not be able to handle them on your own. You should be worried because troubles are certainly coming tomorrow and you may not be able to handle them 
on your own. In fact, I would say ultimately you will not be able to handle them on your own. If you look at what Jesus said here, this is the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So I'm just flipping the page. He's still talking, talking, talking. I'm going to read to you the last two sentences of this sermon that Jesus was preaching. This is how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine, okay? I assume he's referring to all the words he just said. These words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed and its collapse was great. Jesus saying if, if every person who doesn't listen to him, every person who goes, okay, this is what Jesus said, I'll do my own thing. He's saying there's coming a day when the rains and the rivers and the wind are going to come and they're going to wipe you out. I think he's referring to final judgment there. Like hell and all that. And so if your kingdom is what you're living for and depending on, then yeah, you need to worry. Because there's coming a day when the storm is so big, it will, it will wipe you out. But if you are living for and depending upon God and his kingdom and his righteousness, well then don't worry. He will provide for you. He will literally provide for you forever. That's good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel. And so I pray you'd make us into people who do not freak out, who do not worry. I pray that more and more we would take seriously your words. And we would have the right kinds of cares and the right kinds of concerns that we would work to provide for ourselves, but ultimately that we would put you at the top of our priority list and that that would, I pray that it would, that would change our lives, that we would be calm, not freaking out people who, know, who really believe you're going to take care of us forever. And I pray that if there's anybody in here that is hearing about you for the very first time, or maybe for the fifth or sixth time, but the first time where it's like, whoa, maybe I should change my life I just pray that they would not be wiped out, but that they would come to know you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.